Hello, and welcome to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we'll be talking about most of the reign of the second Caliph, Omar ibn al-Khattab. Abu Bakr's two years in charge took us over half an hour to cover last time, and Omar will be around much longer than that. His stable, hands-on leadership will serve the Ummah well during critical periods of the wars with its two neighboring empires and beyond. Let's talk about all this and more in Episode 6, Omar ibn al-Khattab. As with Abu Bakr, I want to start with a little about Omar before he became caliph. His clan was not very prominent within Quraysh, and he had a reputation in Mecca for being a tough guy. He used to harass the early Muslims, and they feared him greatly up until his conversion, which happened around five or six years after the beginning of Revelation, putting him in his early thirties. It is reported that shortly after he converted, he confronted a gang of other Meccan tough guys, whom the Muslims always avoided, of course, and was beaten nearly to death. During the Hijrah to Medina, while most Muslims snuck out of Mecca stealthily so as not to be coerced into staying, he did the exact opposite. He took his stuff, rode his horse, and went around telling every circle of people he saw by the Kaaba that he was leaving, and that anyone who wanted, and I quote, their mother to lose them, should try and stop him. He does have a few more tough guy stories, but you get the idea. In 624, his daughter was widowed in Medina, and he offered her hand in marriage first to Abu Bakr, then Uthman, both of whom rejected the match. When he went to the Prophet to complain about these perceived snubs, the Prophet offered to marry her himself, and so like Abu Bakr, he was technically the Prophet's father-in-law, a great honor as far as the Ummah was concerned. As a capable warrior, he played an important part in all of the major battles during the Prophet's lifetime. He was opposed to ransoming Meccan captives after the battle at Badr, being of the opinion that they should be put to death instead. He was against the treaty at Hudaybiyah and against granting clemency to the Qurayshi leaders after Mecca had been captured by the Muslims. From these strong opinions, it's clear that he was fiercely inclined towards the early Muslims, especially the Meccans who had undertaken the hijra with the Prophet. As previously discussed, he was a key figure at the election of Abu Bakr, and served the first caliph faithfully as his closest advisor throughout his reign. In the last days of his reign, on his very last day according to some tellings, Abu Bakr received a visit from the commander he'd asked Khalid to leave in charge of the Iraqi forces while he swept across Syria. This commander, Al-Muthanna bin Harith, of one of the tribes that roamed close to Lahmid territory, had some troubling news. He explained to the caliph that the chief reason the Arabs had an easy time overwhelming the Persians was because the latter's leadership was in utter disarray. He basically debriefed him on our last episode, telling him that after six years of chaos, the Sassanids were finally beginning to unite around a descendant of the last legitimate Shahanshah. The forces the Arabs had overcome on their territory so far were therefore relatively small regional armies. The Shahanshah's generals were amassing a proper martial response to the invading Arabs, and preparations had to be made if the Arabs were to hold on to their gains. 
Abu Bakr personally asked Omar to send Khalid's troops back to Iraq to reinforce the positions there, and Al-Muthanna went around Medina, trying to recruit more men to the war effort. Omar began his reign by carrying out his predecessor's wishes. His attitude towards Khalid bin Walid had not changed, and in the letter to Syria informing the Iraqi troops of their new orders, he neglected to assign any new troops to Khalid, basically nullifying his command. Many sources insist that Omar's first move was to force Khalid's retirement, but the able general will still command battles on the Byzantine front for a few more years, though it will be the armies originally assigned to other commanders that he'll be leading. Apart from the troops Abu Bakr had asked him to send back to Iraq, Omar asked the people of Medina for volunteers to go fight the Sassanids and gave the command to the first one who came forward. That man took a thousand others of his own tribe and marched towards Al-Hira, growing his army with more volunteers and winning a few minor skirmishes along the way. Arriving at Al-Hira, he took command of the troops there and marched out to meet the Sassanid forces who were camped on the eastern side of the Euphrates. He crossed the bridge with his whole army, some 10,000 men, and quickly got mauled and trampled by a war elephant as he personally led the attack. In the ensuing confusion, thousands of Arabs drowned trying to cross back to the western side as one of them had cut the bridge down to ensure they fought until the end. This debacle was called the Battle of the Bridge and marked the first time the Arabs lost a battle since being united by Islam. Fortunately, Al-Muthanna was there and he is credited with leading thousands of Arabs safely out of battle. All this must have taken place sometime in October 634. Luckily for Al-Muthanna, the caliph had sent fresh reinforcements. If you recall, Abu Bakr did not allow any of the Arab tribes who rebelled against his caliphate to join the armies invading the empires to the north. Omar had disagreed with the caliph on this policy, and now that he was in charge, he abandoned it and allowed them to join the armies. Some sources even report that he freed all of the slaves taken from these wars, declaring that he never wanted Arabs to enslave Arabs ever again. Seeing the riches being amassed by their fellow Muslims, these tribes were eager to get in on the action. With these forces, Al-Muthanna defeated a Sassanid army at Al-Buwayb, a little north of Al-Hira. There were also a river and bridge involved, except this time the Arabs waited patiently on their side, no doubt still stung by memories of the loss they suffered less than a month earlier. Soon after their victory, Al-Muthanna sent news to the caliph that the Sassanids were almost ready to wield their full strength against the Muslims. In early 635, Omar sent the armies of Iraq orders to retreat to the original borders of the Sassanid Empire and disperse so as not to present a target to their enemy. Al-Muthanna managed this withdrawal and the Arabs returned to their tribal lands, where they prepared themselves for the war to come. It's time we turn our attention back to Syria and the ongoing war with the Byzantine Empire. The news of Abu Bakr's death and Omar's election came with orders to dispatch the nine or 12,000 troops that Khalid had brought with him back to Iraq. Most sources say this news arrived as the Muslims were laying siege to Damascus, while others place the siege of Damascus six to nine months later and have the Muslims conquering Palestine instead. There's much disagreement on the timeline here, but what you need to know is that under the leadership of Khalid ibn al-Walid, the Muslims successfully laid siege to and conquered many Byzantine cities, most importantly their original targets of Damascus and Mesa, hereby referred to as Homs. 
I'm going to be even more brief with Khalid's amazing exploits today, lest he conquer this episode as well. There was now a lull in the fighting on both the Byzantine and Sassanid fronts. The new Shahanshah, by now a 12-year-old Yazdegerd III, had proposed to Heraclius, the emperor of Byzantium, that the two fight a joint war against their mutual foe. The emperor accepted and sent the Shahanshah, either his daughter or granddaughter, to seal their new alliance in matrimony. Both empires were gathering massive armies with which to expel the Muslims from their lands once and for all, and the plan seems to have been to initiate hostilities simultaneously, prohibiting their enemy from facing either army with all their might. News of this plan reached Omar, who learned that the Sassanid armies were amassing by their capital of Tessaphon and the Byzantine forces by the city of Antioch, where the emperor resided. Abu Ubaidah, a man Omar trusted greatly, had been appointed high commander at this point, and he kept Khalid around as a military leader and advisor. When Khalid learned of the large Byzantine army, he suggested the Arabs withdraw to where the desert was at their backs and bring all their forces together so as to avoid being picked off by a larger foe. So once more, the forces of Amr, Yazid, Sharhabil, and Abu Ubaidah were brought under the leadership of Khalid, this time in the south of Syria, a little west of Busra, the ex-capital of the Ghassanids. This must have been in the early summer of 636. Fast forward a couple months, and both armies were camped facing each other by a spot at the river Yarmouk. The Sassanids had not yet begun their offensive, which suggests a delay on their part, most probably for internal reasons. Heraclius, therefore, ordered his armies to wait until further notice. Seeing the size of these armies, the Arab commanders wrote to Omar, urging him to send reinforcements. The caliph had so far forbidden most of the early Muslims from leaving Medina, considering them too precious to lose in battle and more useful to him as advisors close at hand. Understanding the odds facing both his armies in Syria and Iraq, he sent the veterans of the early Muslim wars to Syria as reinforcements and ordered his Iraqi armies to negotiate with the Sassanids in hopes of holding off their assault until after the Byzantines were dealt with. The Battle of Yarmouk took place in August 636 and lasted for six days. It's widely agreed that the Byzantines outnumbered the Arabs, but there is no consensus on the exact sizes of either army. Arab sources give their own armies estimates that range from under 20,000 to over 40,000, while putting the Byzantines at a whopping one to 200,000. Although the Byzantines did have Slavic, Armenian, and Ghassanid armies fighting alongside them, it's unlikely their total rose that high, and modern estimates for the Byzantines range between 30 and 80,000 troops, and say the Muslims numbered between half to a quarter of that figure. Despite being told to wait for orders, the Byzantine armies, likely worried by the reinforcements the Arabs kept receiving, decided to attack. They managed to get the better of the Muslims in the first four days, and Arab sources have stories of the fleeing men returning to their camps only to be chased away by their women, who shamed them with poetry lamenting their eminent enslavement and servitude in Byzantine households. Other stories of daring, loss, and sacrifice attest to how dire the Arabs felt their circumstances to be. With no real breakthrough after five days, however, Byzantine morale must have been low as the commander of their forces, the Armenian general Vahan, sent emissaries requesting a short truce and the resumption of negotiations, a request that only served to embolden Khalid, 
who now felt confident enough to lay out one of his battle-changing stratagems. He refused Vahan's offer and later that night sent troops to stealthily secure a vital bridge, the only crossing point out of a steep ravine towards which he hoped to push the Byzantine armies the next day. His plan worked. He successfully routed the Byzantine cavalry, forcing the now unsupported infantry to begin a retreat that led them right into his trap. He ordered his men to take no prisoners, and the Byzantines were decimated. When Heraclius learned of the magnitude of his defeat back in Antioch, he bid Syria farewell and took a boat back to Constantinople. He soon agreed to a one-year truce with the Arabs so that Byzantine loyalists could vacate their lands. Some walled cities continued to resist, but within four years of the Battle of Yarmouk, all of them had fallen to the Muslims. Now that the Byzantines had been defeated, the Arabs had only the Sassanids left to face. The two armies had been camped on opposite sides of a canal west of the Euphrates for months in the province of Qadisiyah, near today's city of Najaf in Iraq. The Muslims sent emissaries to negotiate, and Arab sources tell many fanciful stories about what was said at their meetings with the young Shahanshah and his wise general Rustum, who is sometimes described as Armenian. The Arabs were again outnumbered at this battle, and some accounts provide unrealistically dramatic estimates of their opponents' armies, again reaching up to 200,000 people. This is clearly an exaggeration, and an average estimate would be closer to 80,000, which still seems too high. If I had to bet on it, I'd be most comfortable with something closer to 50,000 for the Persians, against 20,000 Arabs, 30,000 when reinforced. The Iraqi troops had reassembled and been joined by fresh recruits from Medina under another early Muslim and member of Quraysh, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. He was an accomplished commander, and when the caliph had asked some people in Medina to agree on someone to lead their army, Sa'ad was chosen unanimously. Even Tulayha was there, leading his tribe into battle for the Arabs. In case you forgot, he was the pretender to prophecy who attacked Medina soon after the prophet passed away, only four years before this battle. Arab sources credit Rustum with giving some sage advice to the young Shahanshah. He counseled him to retreat back across the Euphrates, telling him that the Arabs were undefeated with the desert behind them and that they could pose no threat as long as they had to cross a river to do battle. The inexperienced and demanding ruler ignored his general's advice and ordered Rustum to attack the Arab armies where they stood. This probably apocryphal story summarizes what's about to happen quite well. In November of 636, the Sassanids drained the canal that lay between them and the Muslims, and Rustam crossed over with his army. The battle lasted three full days, on the second of which Arab reinforcements began arriving from Syria. On the third night, the Arabs set out on a number of raids in the dark, which led to skirmishes that persisted until the fourth and final day. On that day, there may have been a sandstorm which would have tipped the scales decisively in favor of the Arabs. Rustum was killed, and the surviving Sassanids dispersed. Sa'ad marched on to Tessaphon, laid siege to the capital, and after figuring out a safe way to cross the rivers around the fortified city in large numbers, conquered it in February of 637. After a short rest, he continued to the final Sassanid garrison in Iraq, at the town of Jalaula in the north. After a bloody battle in which the Sassanids were again defeated, he laid siege to the city, which fell seven months later. The Shahanshah had by now crossed the Zagros Mountains to safety on the Iranian plateau, 
from where he ordered raids on Arab positions whenever possible. The Arab armies went around Iraq, defeating any leftover pockets of resistance they could find, then conquering the rich southwestern Sassanid province of Khuzestan, known to the Arabs as Al-Ahwaz. Arab territory continued to grow over the next couple of years. Byzantine cities in Syria began to surrender as they realized help was never going to arrive, and the nomads were not going back to their desert. The Patriarch of Jerusalem, Sophonorius, famously insisted that he would only surrender the city to the Caliph himself, so he could be assured as to the treatment of its people. Amr ibn al-As, the commander sent by Abu Bakr to conquer and govern Palestine, suggested the cheap trick of sending Khalid and saying he was Omar, but the renowned general was quickly recognized. So, in 638, Omar made the trip up to Jerusalem, and the city was surrendered. One anecdote recorded in the Arab sources claims that after visiting Sophonorius at his church to reassure him that the Arabs would treat the inhabitants of the city well, Omar asked if he could pray there. The patriarch replied, If you prayed in this church today, tomorrow your people would say, This is where Omar prayed, and turn it into a mosque. Omar saw the truth in this, and after praying outside, asked the patriarch where he thought would make a good place for a mosque. Sophonorius pointed him towards a pile of rubble on top of a mountain. Those were the ruins of Judaism's second temple, which the Byzantines kept around in intentional disrepair as a not-so-subtle message to the city's Jews. At the orders of the caliph, the ruins were removed, and after the area was swept clean by three rains, a mosque was built on the site. Other Byzantine cities that fell to the Arabs that year include Antioch, Edessa, Amida, and Dera. Khalid had a hand in all of them. Sasanian cities also suffered the same fate, with the Muslims conquering both Byzantine and Sasanid Mesopotamia, the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates to the north of Iraq, reaching all the way up to Armenia. 638 must have been a dry year, because the Arabs called 639 the year of grayness, in reference to the color of the soil. The drought led to a famine across Arabia, and its tribes flocked to Medina in hopes of finding some relief there. What they found was a caliph who was on it. He had written to all his governors informing them of the dire need he saw around him with orders to send whatever they could afford. Abu Ubaidah, now governor of Damascus, sent thousands of camels laden with supplies. Arab sources have several accounts of Omar personally going around making sure everybody's needs were met. There are stories of him checking up on Medina's poor at night, of him making bread for three hungry orphans, and many, many others. Their accuracy is besides the point. What is clear is that Omar's handling of this crisis greatly surpassed everybody's expectations, and his leadership was widely praised. Later that same year, another natural disaster struck, one that Omar could do little to shield his people from. An outbreak of plague ravaged the Arabs in greater Syria, leading to the death of over 25,000 of them. Three of the four leaders Abu Bakr had sent to Syria, Abu Ubaidah, Ziyad, son of Abu Sufyan, and Shurhabil, numbered among the dead. The loss of Abu Ubaidah was hard on Omar, who had written to him when he first heard of the outbreak, urging him to return to Medina. The caliph wanted to visit the afflicted territories, but protestations from the people of Medina convinced him that he shouldn't risk it. When the epidemic was over, Omar did indeed go north. 
he checked on his people and appointed another son of Abu Sufyan as governor of Damascus, Muawiyah. Remember this name, Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan. He was Yazid's younger brother and had gone with him as part of his army back when Abu Bakr sent him to take Damascus. Yazid was Abu Ubaidah's deputy as Damascus and Homs were being governed jointly, and when Abu Ubaidah died, Yazid took over. Therefore, it was only natural for Yazid's deputy, Muawiyah, to assume the position when his elder brother also died of the plague. Muawiyah was de facto governor until Omar confirmed him in his visit, sometime between 639 and 641. Another big occurrence in the year 639 was the resumption of hostilities with the Byzantines, albeit on another continent. Amr ibn al-As is about to take center stage, and as his name is confusingly close to Omar's, when talking about the two, I'll just refer to the caliph by his title. There are so many different versions of the story that the inferred dates of the invasion of Egypt vary by almost eight years. Basically, Amr had repeatedly requested permission to invade the province from the caliph, only to be turned down time and time again. Just like the Umayyad sons of Abi Sufyan had close business ties to Damascus, Amr ibn al-As had similar commercial ties to Egypt. Maybe it was the plague that convinced the caliph to send some troops out of Palestine, but Amr was finally authorized to take about 4,000 men and march from Gaza into Egypt. He beat a few Byzantine forces and was finally held down by the confusingly named Fort of Babylon in today's massive city of Cairo. It was heavily fortified and Amr asked the caliph for some reinforcements. The caliph sent another few thousand men and the fort was taken. The sources agree that the credit should go to Al-Zubayr bin Awam, an early Muslim and a leader from amongst the reinforcements sent to Amr, whom we are going to be hearing more about soon. Al-Zubayr scaled the fortress walls, jumped inside and unlocked the door, all while being attacked by the defenders. He miraculously survived the suicide mission and had the scars to prove it. The Byzantines were defeated and Amr quickly established a canton for his troops in Fustat, also a neighborhood in Cairo today. Next, he set out for Alexandria, laying siege to the city in 641 until it fell later that year. There are multiple conflicting stories as to how this happened. Some accounts say there was a bloody battle, and others say the city capitulated peacefully after the Arabs agreed to free all their war captives in exchange for tribute. Amr then split his forces and sent armies west and south. The ones going west into Byzantine territory met with some success as that empire's hold over the continent was seriously weakened by its loss of Egypt. The ones that marched down the Nile into the Sudan were soundly defeated by a Nubian kingdom called Makuria. The Makurians apparently made amazing archers, and they taunted the Arabs by telling them where their arrows were going to hit them before shooting. Six years in, and it's hard to find anything to complain about in Omar's leadership. He helped the Arabs survive several potentially catastrophic scenarios, and he should even be credited with some of the success their armies met in war against the empires. Though he rarely left Medina, the sources make it clear that he was notoriously hands-on when it came to the command of his armies. Asking his secretaries to to transcribe orders to be sent to his commanders seems to have been a daily affair, and there are even stories of him waiting impatiently outside Medina for news from the front. As we'll see next episode when we discuss the rest of Omar's reign, he was as active in policy-making as he was in martial affairs.
With the Byzantine Empire now on the defensive, we will finally get a break from all that warring and focus on the extent and importance of the policy changes made by the second caliph. Unlike his predecessor, the caliph did not shy away from making bold changes when he found them to be necessary. Join me again next time for more about Umar ibn al-Khattab on the caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.